0: Hi everyone and welcome to the Progressive Southern Theologians podcast. I'm Mark Boswell and I'm joined by my friend and colleague Jamie McLeod. Things uh, have escalated very quickly in the United States with the coronavirus since we last spoke. How are things for you in Alabama?
1: We're, we're, we're hanging in there, you know, we're, uh, we're socially distancing ourselves from, from everybody else and The house gets smaller every day, I think. But, you know, we're doing all right. It's a beautiful southern evening here tonight.
0: Okay. Okay, good. Glad to hear y'all are hanging in as best you can uh, right now. Uh, Same here in Louisiana. Things are being shut down more and more, um, rightfully so. But we're hanging in. Uh, Today, dear listeners, Jamie and I have a brief opening segment on the Democratic primary as some contests were still held this past Tuesday. In our second segment, we'll discuss certain aspects of the coronavirus, particularly elements of the digital divide that are being exposed in our country, and also that of the racist undertones, or maybe we should say overtones, that are showing up in troublesome ways related to the spread of the virus. And in our third segment, we are privileged to be able to share an interview that was recorded on Tuesday, March 17th, with Dr. Christine Blackburn, who was an assistant research scientist and the Deputy Director of the Pandemic and Biosecurity Policy Program at Texas A&M University. Dr. Blackburn sat down with us and shared her expertise on infectious disease and on how our government is doing at various levels in response to this pandemic. As we get ready to start things off, please remember that if you enjoy this podcast, to give it a five-star ranking in whatever medium you're using to find us. Doing so helps others find our work out there in the vast land of podcasts. And also please know that we've been able to get our show up and going on more and more platforms over the past week. And we're keeping our fingers crossed that it'll be up and approved on iTunes before you know it. Until then, you can find us on Spotify, our website, ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com, and other podcast outlets. And thank you all for the support and the feedback we've already received. We appreciate y'all, and we have, We look forward to doing more of this um, with you all in the future. Okay, Jamie, this week, the Democratic primary forged ahead in three of four scheduled states, with Joe Biden winning all three states by a good amount. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but the Georgia primary scheduled for this Saturday has been postponed due to the coronavirus. Ohio, scheduled for this past Tuesday, was also postponed. The Puerto Rico primary has been postponed, that was scheduled for March 29th, and the Louisiana primary scheduled for April 4th has also been postponed. But Jamie, let's stay with Biden's victories this week. Biden currently has around a 300-delegate lead, and about 60% of delegates have already been awarded at this point. Let's also state alongside of this that as of the time of this recording, Bernie Sanders is still considering his campaign's next move. So, Jamie, what's the good word out in the streets about Biden's chances for locking up the nomination and Bernie's chances of even staying in the race
1: at this point? One of them is far better than the other. Let's be clear. It was over when Biden won Michigan. Yeah. It, it, it was done. And I appreciate that, that Bernie wanted to, to remain in because he does have an argument to make. And the debate that the two of them had really – was uh, a debate of ideas in which two Democrats came from vastly different places on the democratic spectrum. And, and in that way it was, it was interesting, but really when, when, when Bernie lost Michigan, it was, it was done and nothing that happened over the last three primaries on Tuesday did anything to change that. In fact, it made it much worse Biden won Florida, which was the big prize of the night, handily, and there's this, there, there's no path to victory for Bernie Sanders at this point, as I understand it, following Tuesday night. He went back to Burlington. He did not address his supporters or even put out a statement, uh, other than he was assessing his campaign moving forward. Now, he can stay in that place for a while, really, but... The, the rate, For all intents and purposes, the, the Democratic primary is done. And it really is just a matter of getting to Milwaukee for the convention and, and then getting started with the general. As much as anything, I think that it's because coronavirus, COVID-19 has knocked everything else off the front page and really off most pages. There's just, there's no real reason for Bernie to drop out right now. Like it wouldn't get the sort of attention that he would like it to get just as the leader of a movement like he is. And so I I think he's comfortable to just hang out until at least the the sort of most urgent part of this uh, thing that we're in right now has drawn to a close. Now, whether that's two weeks or two months away, I think is anybody's guess. But really, in terms of moving from primary to general, Biden can certainly begin to make that shift, and he has his his address to his supporters on Tuesday night was again about moving forward and about uniting the party and and taking on donald trump and, and so he really has made that turn and that shift towards the general. It really is just a matter of letting Sanders leave on his own terms now.
0: yeah, um and for those keeping up with home, like for those keeping up at home. As you mentioned, I believe it's a good two, two and a half weeks, if not a few days more before the next primary will happen because of the postponements mentioned earlier with Georgia and Puerto Rico. So there is some time there for the Sanders campaign, like you mentioned, um, because there are not any other primaries immediately happening. And for all we know, some of the others that are scheduled on April 4th outside of Louisiana, which has been canceled, um, they very easily could be as well, you know, as much as things change from day to day. Jamie, did you have any thoughts about Biden's commitment to inviting a woman to be vice presidential candidate that was made during the debate? Yeah, you know, I I watched
1: all two hours of that debate, and that was, for me, the highlight. You know, he has been tacking sort of this centrist line the entire time, right? And and for him to come out and make that commitment and clearly he already has in mind who he's going to pick and maybe he's even made that arrangement. I I don't know, but I mean, it's clear that he, he wanted to make a, as bold a statement as he could in terms of, uh, of picking a running mate. And, you know, I, I'm excited about, seeing who he's going to run with. I mean, there are lots of very, very good options for him to take. I I could see him pairing off with any number of, of highly qualified uh, uh,
0: women. Yeah. Highly qualified women who we, we can say were, uh, if if they were any who were in the the primaries um, who were very qualified to be president. So definitely qualified and not overqualified to be vice president. I say that just as one last lament uh, about the way some of that has played out, uh, you know some of my hopes and aspirations to see someone like an Elizabeth Warren or a Kamala Harris potentially you know win the win the nomination but nevertheless, this is the hand that we have um, and so i uh, am encouraged uh, you know to a, to a degree by Biden's commitment to do this, and it'll be interesting to me to see if he taps someone who signals more towards the, the moderate middle or if he taps someone who will be more of a a person that will energize the farther left part of the party you know those who were backing maybe Warren or Sanders and to see if he goes in that direction of course there will be lots of different ways to read and analyze whoever it is that he picks but that certainly that you know that that will be uh, something that I'm looking for you know, what, what,
1: what I would love to see happen, and I really don't have a dog on this fight, so it doesn't matter to me ultimately, but I would love to see somebody like a Kamala Harris be on a vice presidential debate stage with Mike Pence. Like, <laughs> I, like I feel that would be incredibly satisfying. <laughs> I, you know, personally, I, I would like to see him go that direction, but like I said, there are plenty of qualified and great folks that he could pick. Who are also women so i I look forward to to seeing what he does with that.
0: I'm also going to shout out our fellow Southerner Stacey Abrams over in Georgia, and uh, would not be unsatisfied if uh, if she were uh, his pick as well, but yeah, there are lots of lots of great folks out there. Jamie, you shared with me earlier in the week an article about the digital divide in our country and how the coronavirus is exposing that all the more. Tell us, if you will, a bit more about what you were seeing there and how this is impacting vulnerable and marginalized communities in wake of the pandemic. It had
1: not occurred to me, and this is in my place of privilege that I get to occupy, but like my my children are out of school now and my oldest is, uh, is in middle school. And, you know, when they, when they closed the school, I mean, he's had a laptop from the school all year long. And so he could, he could leave there having everything he needed, come home to a uh, secure internet connection, get back on their their video chat program that they're all using to, to, to teach. And, and it's really no harm, no foul. It's, you know, he does it for two hours a day and it's
0: great. Um, Let me interrupt you there for a second. So he has, they have a video chat option that they're able to do. Um, they use, uh, I think it's
1: some sort of Google Classroom kind of program. Wow. Uh, okay. Right. So from 12 noon to 2 o'clock every day, he gets on with his cohort essentially, and they go through four classes. I think it is 30 minutes a piece. Wow. Um, so, but he was able to do that. Right. He was able to, to, to sort of come home with everything he needed and he'll be fine. That's not the experience of most folks. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Most folks are not going to be able to sort of continue to do their schooling online and, and, and in a chat room or in a video chat where, where they're, Teachers are keeping office hours that you can sign into. And part of what this coronavirus has done is to expose just all the weak places that, that exist in society that we don't think about otherwise. And the digital divide is, is just sort of uh, a microcosm of, of the, the greater issue, right? That, that, that poverty and oppression and struggle really get amplified in the midst of uh difficulty and i was i've been thinking about that all week since i read that article just how much some folks are going to struggle just to sort of uh, learn anything over the next six months Uh, yeah and i really i'm curious i i want to see what that looks like sort of moving forward right how big a hole will that be when this thing is all said and done whether it's two months or six months from now or whatever how big a hole in the educational system is that going to be and there's no way to know that right now but it really does elevate and and magnify the societal issues that that really get plastered over quite often until something like this happens, where sort of even the foundation of everything we thought we knew gets ripped away, and you see who can still who can still float and who sinks, right?
0: And that's right.
1: So I, I, I've been thinking about that a lot this week, actually.
0: Yeah, and I I would say too that it it not just this is not just going to create a hole. It's going to exacerbate a wide gaping hole that's already there in terms of educational equity in our country. Um, in a place like the Delta and in other impoverished rural communities, and I'm sure more than just rural communities, but especially that's, that's my focus, um, we have a hard time in our public school system simply finding teachers, period, to fill in much needed positions. So there, for example, a few years ago, our ninth or 10th graders here in our public school system learned algebra on a computer in their school every day with a permanent substitute teacher because they couldn't find anyone to teach the class. Uh, That's a state-tested, you know, subject. We're not talking about extracurriculars Um, and there's not a lot of extracurriculars offered because of a a lack of of faculty and staff um, in our schools and it's not uncommon in any given year here in in the delta in our in this parish to find up to eight or nine different faculty or instructor positions that go unfilled and have to be have to be placed with permanent substitutes for the year or for a long portion of the year or with individuals who may be seeking out certification but do not have it you know at that point uh, so it's there's already a big gap and i think too it's not just a gap about access to you know, high-speed internet, the actual electronic equipment that is needed. It's also a matter of digital literacy. There's a great divide in terms of how to use the things that are there. And I know that some people will come back and say, "Well, oh, you know, young people know how to use a smartphone or a tablet." Well, yeah, to some extent, that's true, but that doesn't that doesn't equate to using Zoom or, or Google Hangout or uh, or parents knowing how to, to do that necessarily or. And it certainly doesn't speak to even a gap in like, how much data can you afford to pay for in a given you know, month period. A lot of people are foregoing home Internet because, you know, and again, I'm speaking of an impoverished community, but they certainly don't have home Wi-Fi. Because, and if they have access to the Internet, it's through a track phone. So they might have a cell phone, but it's only as good as long as it's able to be paid for from month to month and we were having this conversation earlier today with some community organizers in the area and everybody of course is talking about zoom oh well, let's just let us zoom and let, let's do that or some equivalent to that and um and they, and they were asking could i get some of the the leadership here some lay leadership and folks that i work with onto to zoom and do a training and i said sure but we've got to be considerate of whether they have data packages that are able to, and i don't know exactly how much data zoom uses but i'm going to I just assume it's going to use a, a, a decent little bit, especially to video and whatnot. Uh, but, I, you know, just to point that out, even of just what people's I don't have to worry about that because I have the privilege of having an unlimited plan for my cell phone. But that's certainly not the case for most people in a lot of, that I know uh, here in the area. Uh, so that that it taps it, it taxes those restraints as well. In our town, already uh, the library has been shut down, where which has you know public Wi-Fi and access to computers. Um, there are all of our restaurant dining rooms have been shut down at this point, which there's only two or three restaurants here, um, which may or may not have had public Wi-Fi. I don't remember. And then there's there's no McDonald's, there's no Starbucks. You know, there's no other place to go for public access to Wi-Fi. Um, there's no none of those restaurants or stores are here in our area. Um, you have to travel a good ways to get to one. So those things just aren't options, and it's, it'll be very curious to see. I need to dig around and figure out what's happening more here in our own parish um, for students. This just happened this past week, but yeah, there's definitely gonna be, uh, the already existing inequities are gonna be just played out all the more, I'm afraid. We'll, we'll see, we'll definitely we'll see how that happens. And you know, Jamie, as part of this segment, I wanted to also share a plea, since I'm talking about Louisiana in my own context right here, I want to share a plea for what's going on in our state. Since last Friday, we have jumped from being the ninth ranked state with diagnosed cases in the country to the fifth ranked state by this past Wednesday. So that was less than a week we moved from ninth to fifth. As of the day of this recording, our governor's called in the National Guard Now the rates of diagnosed cases of COVID-19 have ballooned tremendously and specifically in New Orleans over the past two weeks, skyrocketing the city to second place in the country for the most positive cases per capita. So that's where the parish or the county in which New Orleans constitutes the majority of, uh, it has gone up to being the second second place in the country. Uh, Keep in mind that testing is woefully behind in many rural areas and urban too in Louisiana and like places across the country. So there's no sense that this number accurately reflects the number of cases that are actually here. This is tremendous because first Louisiana consistently ranks as one of the poorest states in the country, as do many southern states, Mississippi, Alabama. And we have no sense that Louisiana or most other states are adequately prepared for such an outbreak. Our governor started moving quickly last week, but that still puts us in a place of being pretty far behind where we need to be. A lot of this, we think, is linked to Mardi Gras, which happened about four weeks ago, and which also brings in roughly a million or more people into New Orleans, and these are international travelers as well as people from all across the country. To put this in perspective, the first positive case surfaced less than two weeks ago. Now we've had cases in 26 counties or parishes, and again with New Orleans being second to New York City in terms of diagnosed cases per capita or poor Per one million people, I believe. Outside of a few urban centers like New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and Shreveport, most of Louisiana is very, very rural and very poor, and local leaders across the state are obviously very anxious about this, as they are elsewhere in the country. Um, there's a press conference scheduled tomorrow on Friday, March the 20th, praying that this gets the attention of the national media, as predictors are already showing that New Orleans is on its way to being like Wuhan or Lombardy, Italy there's some interesting data that tracks day by day progression of the disease of of the outbreak. And we are already matching by day, day 12 of the first case in Louisiana, just our state is already at similar levels to what the entire country of Italy was at day 12 of their outbreak. So that's, that's very significant And, and people in New Orleans and across the state are starting to get very, very worried about this, but in terms of death rates and diagnosed cases, Louisiana at day 12 since the first diagnosed case is at the same place that Italy was as a country at day 12 from when they had their first case some time ago. So Jamie, I'm going to take a deep breath here and go ahead and say that there are definitely also stories underlying all of this about race that get involved with this and how this plays out in our state and across the South and elsewhere not to mention the way that our presidential administration has used race in it's very framing of the pandemic uh, very very troublingly so and i believe jamie you've got some thoughts on that matter both in terms of the presidential administration this goes back to our discussion on the digital divide and how that plays out so what are what are you thinking on that end it strikes me that
1: the longer and the deeper that we get into our our experience with this disease and the the clearer that it has become that the administration made significant missteps really very very early on Mm -hmm. and those have those have blossomed to being huge uh huge issues really throughout the country but in these hot spots that you were talking about. Earlier today we talked about Andrew Cuomo and him sort of pleading for help in, in New York State and really New York City and the the potential just catastrophic overwhelming of medical systems there. Same as in Seattle. It sounds like the same as in New Orleans. Yeah. And so that, as that has come into sharper and sharper focus, there has been a movement within the administration. I want to say the administration writ large and not just sort of at the, the top of the administration to uh, almost like a sleight of hand to, to use the origin of the virus or the locale of the origin of the virus to draw attention away from those missteps and to to focus people's frustrations and and angst and anger not sort of at the situation that we find ourselves in this country but at the the place of origin right so a disease that both has a common name coronavirus and a scientific name covid-19 uh, becomes the Chinese virus, or the Wuhan virus, or as one, uh, I believe it was CBS uh, reporter tweeted out earlier this week, the Kung flu, which is so terrible as to almost be unbelievable, except for nothing is unbelievable anymore. Um,
0: it, it wasn't that, was that reporter, were they told that by a, an aide to the president? Yes.
1: That, Right, so that's, that's why I don't want to sort of just <laughs> suggest that it was, it's only the, the president who is embracing this sort of language. It, it really is much deeper within the administration. And, and on the one hand, like, that train's never late, right? I mean, <laughs> if there's going to be a way to, to in, inject racial hatred into a situation, that's going to happen. And yet at the same time, there seems to be something especially sinister about a movement to to draw attention away from your own sort of shortcomings and and place it on people who are dying like people who are struggling to put the pieces back together people who are trying to figure out if their if their region of their country is ever going to have an economy again it feels it feels like you're taking people who are like the wave has already crested over them. Like they've already been washed out to sea. Like this thing that we keep on sort of being concerned is going to end up coming to our shore and, and sort of swamping uh, our medical system and our society. Like that's already happened to them. And so what you're doing is you're seeing these folks who are just trying to put one foot in front of the other and, and you're you're drawing – are you trying to direct the hate and the angst and the anger that, that Americans feel right now towards some sources outside of our system, um, and, and 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 that it is uh, it is folks folks who are not uh, white is is both not surprising and pretty disgusting at the same time. So I, I've been deeply aware of that the last few press conferences that that, that I've listened to, and, and I'm becoming. A news junkie and all this, and so i I tend to have the the news on sort of in the background, of whatever I'm doing these days and, yeah and it really is um like i said it's it's like a sleight of hand, like if I can get you looking over here, you can't see what's going on in my other hand um and yeah. I, that that is that's problematic on a number of levels, not the least of which is just being a decent human being. Um, <laughs> Right. <laughs> like it seems like such a low bar to try to get over and yet here we are tripping on it um that's a microcosmic sort of example of what we're seeing sort of writ large right that in the end it's going to be largely poor communities who don't have medical systems they can depend on right now much less when they get swamped right it's going to be racial, racially divided areas of the country where, again, there aren't the sort of resources to draw upon, right? So whether it's education or medicine or food or, right, all that's going to become exacerbated and there's going to be a magnifying glass placed on all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I think it's important as we, as we continue to have these conversations and continue to sort of live into this new world that we find ourselves that we not lose sight of that, right? That we not lose sight of of those communities that are struggling mightily with this, right? And, and really, being stuck in a house is terrible, right? It's like being stuck in a house and having nowhere to go and feeling like if you do go somewhere, you're running the risk of getting you and your family and your friends sick is awful. And so I'm not meaning to did not say that. Right. But at the same time, like I have a nice house. I have televisions and internet and plenty of things to do throughout here. And I can keep myself busy and I'm not worried about whether my job will be there when I come back. Mm-hmm. I'm not wor- worried about whether the, the business that I own will be there when I come back. Right. When we're allowed to come out of the house again. <sighs> There are folks that are carrying these sorts of these sorts of concerns night and day, and really we are that's the conversation that we're not having enough of. so whether it's sort of a racial conversation or a class conversation, right these are the things that are arising uh, that are going to continue to become larger and larger in scale as we move forward, and I think it's important that as much as we might want to externalize whatever's happening and point over to the other side of the ocean or another community and say, it's those folks over there. It's us, right? It's us and the systemic issues within our society that are now coming into full bloom as we're watching it.
0: That's right. That's right. I was I saw earlier today, there's an article that was written by Dr. Blackburn, who we'll hear from later, uh, written back in 2018, that said the United States, the title of it, this was in Newsweek, the title of the article was that the United States is not ready for a pandemic, essentially was that was was in the title It said, like, in terms of our infrastructure, our political will, Our economic system, the way that impacts healthcare, it said we're not prepared for an outbreak, you know, or for a pandemic. And this was again two years ago, almost. So, like you said, this is all the fruition of things that did not just, you know, come about within the last two weeks, but have been going on for a long time. And the other thing, Jamie, your comments made me think about is that is it not the mechanics of white supremacy to point I'm thinking I'm thinking of in the moment, I'm thinking about poor white folks it to point your problems to the, the external source, like you said, yeah. because the truth, the truth of, of poverty in the United States is that there are millions upon millions of white folks who live in poverty and who will be directly affected by these outcomes. It's not just communities of color who will be adversely affected. Economically speaking, but I mean, again, that that's that's as old as the United States is itself. You know, in terms of how white supremacy works within our borders, to say part of the investment that white folks get out of white supremacy is the idea that well, at least you know we're not as bad off, or at least we're better than somebody, or uh, correlatively we can scapegoat others for our own problems and. Our, our current president is certainly going to the bank off of that ideology or that logic in terms of how he has started uh, enumerating the woes of our country from the time he descended from his golden elevator to announce his bid for the presidency. You know, that's, that was first and foremost. One of the things that he brought up was how the issues face, you know, facing our country are you know, issues with Mexico, For to put it much nicer than he did. Um, and as 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 untrue as the things as he was saying. But yeah, so a presidency rooted in xenophobia from day one is certainly, you know, this is in keeping with that. And it will to go now to go back to how this, you know, impacts marginalized communities, including poor white folks. Uh, But we do know and to be fair, it, it is poor communities of color that that burden is carried doubly so or triply so. So whether when I talk about the Delta, I'm speaking of communities that are predominantly 75-85% African-American. That's what I was describing earlier. In my context, the article you referenced on the digital divide um, speaks about Native American reservation systems. I'm sure similar types of uh, scenarios are true down around the Rio Grande Valley and the Colonias and throughout the Black Belt and the Cotton Belt and in other parts of the country as well Do those all of the myriad examples of inequities in terms of class always get tied back into, or usually get tied back into, stories of race as well, um, along with other forms of gender and sexual discrimination too. Uh, but that certainly is um, it's as American as apple pie. As <laughs> we <laughs> <laughs> said before, um, you know that externalization, as you said, and I don't know, like that language that you used. Um, so I'm glad that we've had a moment or two to, uh, to discuss this. Do you have any final or closing comments about that? I appreciate
1: that we have this interview coming up here with Dr. Blackburn because she is, of course, way more qualified to talk about the scientific and the, the, the medical side of it. And I, I appreciate that we were able to lift up some of the societal and cultural issues that were, that were at play
0: as well. Welcome, everyone, to a special segment on this week's Progressive Southern Theologians podcast about the coronavirus and COVID-19. We are very fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Christine Blackburn, who joins us to share in her expertise and ongoing research around infectious diseases. Dr. Blackburn is an assistant research scientist and the deputy director of the Pandemic and Biosecurity Policy Program at Texas A&M University. Before we begin our interview, let us say that this is being recorded on the morning of Tuesday, March 17th. And as our podcast is released later in the week, we know that things may be changing by the time this reaches you, our listeners. But much of what we're discussing today is not time sensitive, so we trust you'll enjoy much of the conversation that follows. Dr. Blackburn, thank you very much for being here. How are you this morning?
2: I'm doing good, I'm excited to be here and to talk to you about coronavirus and COVID-19.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Dr. Blackburn, could you begin by telling us what exactly is a pandemic and biosecurity policy program? Because if you ask me, it sounds pretty relevant to the current crisis we're facing with coronavirus.
2: Um, yeah. So so broadly, I'll start broadly and then I'll kind of try to, to focus it down. Broadly, the po- the program is focused on something called global health security. So I know most listeners probably aren't familiar with that, but we just look at all of the policies, programs, healthcare infrastructure, whatever um, you can think of that would be important to minimizing impact of acute health events. So we're not talking about chronic diseases or anything like that. We're talking about pandemics, epidemics, bioterrorist attacks, those sort of short-term high-impact events that are on a global scale. So the focus of our program is on um, the collective health of the global population. Ultimately, we often talk about how diseases don't respect borders. Mm -hmm. And so we have to look at it as a full community when we're talking about infectious diseases. Um, And then so one of the more narrow focuses, I guess, of our program is um, pandemic preparedness response. So we spend a lot of time analyzing past um, outbreaks and past pandemics and trying to apply lessons learned from those and trying to make recommendations at a government level, um, either federal or um, international, as to how we can be better prepared the next time a pandemic comes around. So that's ultimately what our
0: program does. Which is exactly what we're in right now. So. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I know we're going to talk some more about about how prepared we are or are not. Um, so I'll, I'll save that for a minute. Um, but as we're as we're scrambling around and making plans, I know that sometimes it's easy to lose sight of exactly what it is we're dealing with. Um, and so, in that regard, could we zoom all the way out for a minute and? Could you tell us or maybe remind us in laypersons' terms what are the coronavirus and COVID-19?
2: Yeah, so coronavirus um, is actually a family of viruses. There's thousands of coronaviruses out there. So I know a lot of people um, who don't work in infectious disease, this outbreak was maybe the first time they had ever heard of a coronavirus, but coronaviruses have been around for a really long time. They're mostly found in bats, um, but they infect a, a, um, a bunch of different mammals and there's seven types. So there's thousands of, of coronaviruses out there, but only seven of them that infect people. Oh,
1: okay.
2: Um, yeah. And so four of them, four of these seven cause the common cold. So when you get, so we're not talking about influenza, but we're talking about the common cold when you just get, you know, your sinuses congested, congested, you don't feel that great. Um, that is potentially coronavirus. So rhinoviruses are the other um, very common cause of the common cold. And then you have your three coronaviruses that are are more severe, right? So those are SARS, MERS, and then this SARS-CoV-2, um, which is the official name of the virus that causes COVID-19. Oh. So- yeah. So there's, it gets confusing, right? They name the virus. This is kind of like polio. Like the virus has a different name than the disease manifestation. So the, the name of this coronavirus is SARS-CoV-2. Um, and one of the things that I think is really cool about, about coronaviruses is that they are one of the largest types of viruses out there. So they're, they're considered kind of like a, they're not the largest, but they're considered a very large virus. Um, and as such, they have a proofreading mechanism. So kinda like DNA, when DNA is replicated, there's a proof, proofreading re- mechanism to make sure that it, it gets it right in replication. Um, RNA, which is what most is what viruses are, they don't have that typically, but coronavirus does. And so that's good news because it means that the virus is highly stable. It's not gonna mutate very much. Um, it's gonna stay pretty much the same. And that's, that's good news because that means even if it takes us a year, Or 18 months to develop a vaccine, um, the virus isn't going to have changed to the point where that vaccine won't be effective. So that's one of the good things about coronavirus. Um, Okay. So
0: the target's not changing. It's it's going to look the same now or 18 months later.
2: Exactly. And the other thing is is we know a lot about coronaviruses. This one might be new, but we've been working with people around the world have been working with coronaviruses for decades. So there is some base level of understanding of the general. Family of viruses, which allow us to be a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of um, creating, you know, countermeasures to a novel coronavirus. Um, and then, as I mentioned previously, COVID nineteen is the name they gave for the disease that you get when you're infected with the virus. So that's that's just the name of the disease.
0: Okay. Now, have I heard you say that we have that some people have had some form of the or some type of the the coronavirus within the big, broad family of them before? Like you mentioned earlier, maybe if we catch the cold or something like that, or is that?
2: Yes, I would say it's highly likely that everyone at some point in their life has had a coronavirus, not this coronavirus, but a coronavirus, Um, one of the four that infect people and cause common cold.
0: So interesting, okay. So um, while we have you, and I know your time is precious, what I know one, an obvious pressing question uh, is still on many people's minds is what are the best ways to, for folks to protect themselves? Um, yeah, yeah, we'll start there.
2: Um, I mean, the, the recommendation is still the general hygiene practices like hand washing mm-hmm. um, and social distancing. And there, there is some, I was listening to a podcast this week in virology, which is one of my favorite podcasts. I was listening to that the other day and they were talking about, there's um, data from Hong Kong where they compared it to things like the seasonal flu and to... Um, things called enteroviruses and that sort of thing that are really common in the winter. And mm-hmm. they compared the level of, of those diseases because they can look at what it looked like last year and the year before. So the historical data on that um, after the implementation of like hand washing and social distancing um, to see if they could determine how big of an impact these things will have on the coronavirus. And they saw that all those diseases just like plummeted. So people weren't getting those diseases either. So they're inferring that these things are really effective in protecting people from coronavirus and other things as well.
0: So, if with or without the coronavirus, all of these things are still. Yes. <laughs> you Wash your hands. Your Wash your hands always. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Don't stop. Um, whenever this thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, is is the prevailing logic still that the elderly and people with underlying health issues are the most vulnerable populations? Or has that shifted some? Or what are we seeing out in the world?
2: No, that's, that's what I've seen still is most of the data shows elderly, um, or I mean, just generally people over the age of 60 or anyone with underlying health conditions. There's varying information about like which health conditions are putting you most at risk, but Mm -hmm. I've consistently seen that hypertension, diabetes, cancer, and cardiovascular disease seem to be most associated with um, severe
0: versions of COVID-19. Okay. So if you're 25 years old or 30, should you still like go out and hit the club up this Friday or, or should it? <laughs>
2: No, you should not. You absolutely should not. You know, like I talked about in the beginning, health is, it's a collective good. All right. So we, you might not be at risk. Like you could be in the low risk group and you could be like, I'm just going to go out. I'm going to go to the club and I'm going to be fine. And you might be fine. You might get a mild illness, but then let's say that you run into like just a mom who has young kids and is undergoing chemotherapy and she contracts that virus from you and then she dies, right? So it's, it's a collective process and we're all in it together. So no, don't go out to the club on St. Patrick's Day. That's
0: right. You will be a terrible person. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I think, I think. I mean, we live in the culture of memes now, if you're on social media, but I did see one, um, I think it was just yesterday that said that, like, you know, you might not be the most vulnerable, but consider all the other people that you could come into contact with, or that you might spread it to, and so be a decent human being, and try to be responsible, um, to the, to the extent that you, you know, can practice the social distancing, um, in mm-hmm. your personal life. Um, so that's good. Um, let's switch gears for a minute. Um, now I just to put our cards on the table. We, we, this are, as our name of our podcast says, we do self identify as being progressive. Um, so we are a bit left leaning. Um, but I know that you, uh, you, you follow uh, the way you described, um, the nature of the policy program that you're part of. I know you follow uh, what's happening at all governmental levels, and so in a in a spirit of nonpartisanship, I, I am I do want to know what are you uh, what are you seeing from the response of our federal government? How should we make sense of that? You know, outside of the the tendency to to, to be pulled strongly to one side of the political divide or the other. What's what are you seeing that's actually happening from our federal government, um, and and are we in good hands?
2: <clears throat> um okay so in hopefully this response will not sound partisan because it's actually non-partisan. We've never been as a federal government, we've never been really good at responding to pandemics. So to say that like our response to 2009 was just phenomenal and this response is terrible it, it is not it is not accurate, but I would say the overall federal government response um to COVID-19 is is poor.
0: Mm-hmm. Um now you can be Dr. Blackburn you can be partisan i didn't want you <laughs> cuz we we are i didn't want you to feel pressured to be <laughs>
2: Oh no that's fine well i try to keep disease you know to me disease is not a partisan issue it's just based on facts and reality and yeah. and so um you inherently when you're talking about disease you're not really talking about the partisanness but i know in the world of uh more partisan politics sometimes even even straightforward comments about disease can be you know can be seen as partisan but um i would say that overall the federal government response has been has been poor to very poor so one of the the biggest problems so one of the things that we always talk about like that we've been writing about for years as part of our pandemic program is that leadership is one of the most important things in a pandemic response you have Mm. to have strong coordinated leadership. And we uh, at the federal level currently are lacking any sort of leadership in the mm-hmm. pandemic response.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that is having, so, so not only is the federal government not leading this response, it's really being led by state governments, local governments, um, private industry. The federal government is almost like a sideline observer in, in the outbreak right now. And that's, that's very atypical. Um, and then on top of that, um, it appears just from statements and then the reaction to those statements that the, um, president is actually having almost a negative effect. So, you know, Mm -hmm. there was all that talk about the the live address and and the stock market plummeting during the live address. Um, Mm -hmm. following the comments yesterday, there was a run on guns and ammo. So the, the, the communication and the is coming out of the federal government is not having a calming effect on people um to put it mildly but i do want to say one exception is dr fauci Uh, he is a fantastic brilliant scientist and he has been speaking at the congressional hearings he's been speaking to the news organizations and he is really like the steady source of good information and i think that people can turn to him if they have questions or if they're confused. I've heard a lot of people say they're really confused about what is happening and what they should be doing, and Dr. Fauci is a great source of information there. And he's at the federal level, so there is that.
0: Okay, and what what department or organization does he represent, for those who may not know?
2: He is, um, it's the, I can't remember what the acronym stands for. It's the NIDA, the International Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease, I think is what the... Okay. the yeah, And so that's part of NIH, which is the National Institutes of Health. And he has been like the top infectious disease advisor for six presidents. So he oh, wow. started, you know, with Reagan and AIDS, and he has been involved in every massive um, infectious disease incident since that point.
0: Okay. He's been around um, and is familiar. <laughs> okay. Okay.
2: Yeah. And you ask if we're, do you want me to, you ask if we're in good hands, do you want me yeah. to answer that? I so know. my, my, uh my answer to that is yes and no, which I know is not like really the greatest answer, but I say yes and no, because I say yes, we're in good hands because there are a lot of really brilliant scientists who are working on the outbreak response and who are, uh, looking at different aspects of it. So some of them are traveling to places that are impacted and trying to help response to the outbreaks there. Some of them are preparing different countries who haven't gotten the outbreak severely yet, like places in Africa for the inevitable. Um, there are scientists ve- developing a, a vaccine and really just like working around the clock to bring the pandemic under control. Um, and there's some state level governments and Businesses and schools and that sort of thing, local governments that are making decisions on their own that are that are good decisions and that are having a positive impact. So if you're in those places, um, you are in good hands. Shifting away, uh, you know, a lot of what has occurred at the federal level is actually making a bad situation worse. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at it at that like very um, specific level, I would say no we're not in good hands.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb here and just ask um, the president calling this a hoax and a democratic ploy to, I don't know, make the president look bad. Uh, I'm guessing all of that was probably not the ideal way for um, a a leader. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) no, I'm...
2: Yeah. I mean, no, not at all. And there are other things that are even beyond that, which are, I think are really problematic, you know, deciding halfway through to label it the Wuhan virus in in an attempt to basically deflect any blame and say like, this is something that China did is not the way to handle an outbreak. And that has increased international tensions. It's going to increase the trade war. It's going to have all of these other economic and um, international politics implications just because, The president felt like labeling it the Wuhan virus, you know, which is something that could have so easily been avoided. Just call it COVID nineteen, you know. Um, So, yes, that is those things have made it worse. I do know that in the age of social media and uh, misinformation, that's something that we're really struggling with in the response. I saw somebody sent me a video the other day that's circulating among kind of like ultra conservative websites and it was like you just (laughs) it was saying you know the virus is killed at a temperature of 133 degrees fahrenheit which is true but the video was suggesting you know that again this is a democratic ploy and we can just all be protected from it by inhaling air at the temperature of 100 133 degrees fahrenheit so it's it's propagating to people that this is made up and if you just inhale incredibly hot air which obviously will cause tremendous damage to your body um then you can just kill off the virus which is not scientifically true so there's battling that too
0: oh my gosh well even um go back to social media our president tends to be um always well behind the curve of decent behavior on there um as of yesterday march 16th um he tweeted and called it again on march 16th he just he called it again the chinese virus so he Mm -hmm. is sticking to his guns. There. Doubling yeah.
2: down on that.
0: Doubling down. Exactly. Um, yeah. Wow. The times we live in. I feel mm-hmm. like we've been saying that for three years now. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we're uniquely positioned having three years of um, kind of like this idea that, that reality isn't reality and facts don't matter. I think that is actually making it that much harder for the United States in particular to deal with this because you are used to just, you know, I I just think that all of those things in the three years of compounding that is making it harder for people to really understand what they need to do and how to process important information. Right.
0: Now, I will say, um, we are, I mean, we're progressive Southern theologians, so there's, there's a faith-based element to this, um, Dr. Blackburn, I know that you uh, faith is a component of your life, and I see—I'm um, sure everyone has seen—if they've been on Facebook for two minutes—and have any friends who are of the evangelical persuasion, um, people will say things like, uh, "You know, we just need to pray more, <laughs> or um, Jesus will make this okay." And while we have great faith, um, I'm gonna—I'm gonna also just take a moment and editorialize and say that um, you can pray all you need and all you want. That's probably a good thing to do, but um, please keep washing your hands and practicing (laughs) social distancing. That is not uh, a subterfuge. Um, and you've heard it here from Dr. Blackburn. So, <laughs>
2: yeah. And I always think of that as the, like, what is the, the parable where it's like the guy is drowning and he's like, God, come save me. And somebody comes by with a boat and somebody comes by with something else. And there's like three instances where someone comes by to save them. And then the guy drowns. And when he gets to heaven, he's like, God, why didn't you save me? And he's like, I sent a boat. I sent this. You like, you have a responsibility to do some of it. So I, that's kind of how I view this too. So you can pray, to... but you still have your responsibilities. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
1: that's
0: right um yeah hopefully hopefully on this sunday we'll start to see more congregations i know some i know many across the country um did not have services last sunday or they found alternative ways to have services or they canceled altogether either way i hope that more churches follow suit um starting this weekend as from a Pastoral perspective we're hoping to see more um, churches get involved in that uh, which would be where we've canceled some services that we have here in the Delta um, and so we hope that continues out now um, speaking of that dr. Blackburn um, we've we've got a lot of folks who work with religious congregations uh, who do listen to this podcast and we're often the type who want to help uh, we try to be a very helpful bunch but we may not always know the best ways to help in face of something like this. So from your vantage point of working at the policy governmental level, and also knowing a whole lot about the disease, um, what would you suggest that folks do or not do when it comes to our attempts to be organized or helpful in the, in our communities?
2: Um, I mean, I think one of the biggest ones is that, you just need to get a little bit creative with how you're going to help. So I know there were some school districts where the school is closed down and a lot of kids are on free and reduced lunch. So they were looking for ways to um, to still deliver food to those children. And so they had set up going door to door and that's great, but maybe um, don't have people in the high risk groups doing that door to door or Um, You know, set up a time that you're dropping off food and drop it on the doorstep and then, you know, back six feet away from the doorstep and then they can open it. So just implementing all of these um, social distancing practices, but still being able to do the things that that are um, necessary in the community and just getting creative about it that way.
0: Okay, okay, that's that's an excellent point. Um, Are there other things that you're seeing that we should keep in mind during this time?
2: Um, oh, so many uh, so, yeah, so I mean, first of all um, it's one of the things i'm concerned about is is the I guess panic or the like hoarding of support So I've been, I've been kind of doing an informal experiment. I I saw this coming a couple weeks out. So I started observing and I've been kind of following the stores. I know this is weird, but I'm a researcher at heart. So I, so I do informal experiments and I've been kind of following the progression of the panic um, throughout at least my, my local area. And, and, you know, the problem is, is that the, it's, Um, emptying shelves, you're creating an artificial shortage, which has a huge impact on low income families who can't go in and stockpile six months worth of food and supplies. So those people um, are going in, you know, to to buy food or to buy toilet paper, to buy whatever. And all of that stuff is gone from the shelves because um, people took more than they need. So really uh, that's one of the things that I'm keeping an eye on because I do think that's, that's, um, a thing that people really need to keep in mind. Yeah, collect, you know, two to four weeks of of goods for self-quarantine, but you don't need months and months of supplies. Make sure to leave some of that for other people who might not have the ability to stockpile things. Um, other thing that I'm I'm watching are the supply chains. So there was a report that came out, I think, two or three days ago, from the Institute of Supply Management that says um, 75% of the companies they surveyed are already experiencing supply chain disruptions mm-hmm. as a result of um, COVID-19. And if I mean our global supply chain, everything comes from somewhere else, right? So having these supply chain disruptions are huge, whether it's disrupted at the source of manufacturing or it's disrupted because there isn't enough um, crew who are healthy to drive the cargo ships across the ocean. So you might have enough supplies, but they might be stuck in a different country because they can't be brought here. Um, So paying attention to some of that and um, trying to pay attention to where the the choke points are in the supply system.
0: Um,
2: And then Sorry. I know there's a lot, there's a lot of things that I'm, that oh, I'm thinking oh, about.
0: have you Keep going, please. If there's more.
2: Um, and the other one, the biggest one it, right now that I'm paying attention to is hospital capacity. So this is something that I first started writing about when I was a graduate student. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I um, think it's, it's really important. And even in the pandemic preparedness community, we don't talk about it as much as I think we should. And, um, most of our hospitals in the United States operate at 100% at, on a daily basis. So, just your average day, your hospital is operating at near 100% capacity. Mm. So, you don't have the ability to surge, and we don't have enough um, things like ventilators. So, if you think about the average hospital as 20 ventilators, what if there's you know 25 patients that come in and need a ventilator? Hopefully, you would be able to send those five patients to another hospital. But as we're seeing in Italy right now, doctors are having to decide, like, which of those five patients dies and which, you know, doesn't. Yeah. So having to make those front hair, um, frontline healthcare workers, having to make those decisions um, because of a lack of resources is, I think, a critical problem. And I think it will be a problem in the United States in the coming weeks.
0: That's so interesting. Even last week on our, on our first episode, we had a segment on the coronavirus and something that was discussed was the fact like in rural communities, like where I live, where there's, there's one hospital here within a 35 mile or more radius. And and the next one that you get to is also going to be a pretty small one. So really the first larger hospital is at least an hour and a half or so away. And if a rural hospital is strapped um, and they're, sending someone somewhere else that then becomes a considerable uh there's a lot of issues and difficulties that come up both for the hospitals and for the patients themselves as they're trying to they in other words um my colleague and co-host was saying where he lives there's six or seven medical clinics or facilities within a i don't know 5 10 15 mile radius of where he lives versus here where uh, in the delta where that number you know that 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 reach goes much much farther and somebody would have to to travel a much greater distance to get to that next available resource and and i know that's still going to clog up the the chain and there's still going to be an an abundance of people even when they get there Um, so that's um something that's on our minds for our smaller hospitals in the rural rural communities too um where they can't just drive around the block and find a different uh find a different clinic Um, Yeah, I think
2: that's a big, big problem where, I mean, where I'm from on the border of Washington there, you have to, if you have a serious problem, you have to go to Minneapolis, Minnesota or Seattle. So if you're living in like Idaho or Montana, you have to go what, 10 hours, either direction to get to a hospital that can handle a serious event.
0: Wow. That puts things in perspective down here. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, Okay. Uh, is there anything? I'm gonna I'm gonna get you out of here on this question. Um, you've been following this for a while. The last time you and I spoke was probably in early to mid February. Has anything surprised you over the last month or so as things have progressed um, here in the U.S. or or has as this or maybe it hasn't? Has this been sort of what you were expecting to come? Or what are your thoughts about that?
2: Um, in in terms of the response, I think. I had hoped for better. It, 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 the response is actually, I'm going to say, worse than I had thought it was going to be. But I, um, just based on the history of how the U.S. has responded to pandemics, I wasn't overly optimistic in terms of our response. Um, there, are, I mean, just in general, there are some interesting things about the disease itself in that it doesn't affect young children, which is strange. But it, it seems to affect people who have weaker immune systems, just not children and pregnant women. so in terms of the virus that's been very interesting um, to me and there's some like scientific related developments that have happened in the last month uh, in terms of our understanding of the virus that i've found really interesting so like there's um what's called antibody dependent enhancement potentially in this virus and all that means is that if you have antibodies for the virus so if you've been infected and you recovered and you have antibodies and you encounter the virus again you will actually get more severe disease um, so that's that's just preliminary we don't know if that's actually true there's just um, some emerging evidence that that might be a possibility so i've found that to be really interesting
0: very interesting okay well that's good to keep in mind um, and to follow along with mm-hmm. dr blackburn thank you so very much for your time. I know you are probably working around the clock um, and have many things on your plate. I know you have some roles um, there at Texas A&M in addition to what you do that you've been the spokesperson and you've helped um, for months now, you've been helping people in the public make sense of this. And I appreciate you sharing your time with us. Um, is there a certain, um, you mentioned Dr. Fauci, is there any other place if folks want to, to jump on their computer and find some information, is there, a place you would send them? Or should they just Google search Dr. Fauci and and try to follow along with um, the organizations that he's part of or through which he's speaking? Do you have any thoughts about that?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, following Dr. Fauci, he's in the news a lot. So there's quite a bit of information that coming out from him. So if you Google him, you should be able to find a lot of good information. Dr. Hotez um, from Baylor College of Medicine has also been a really strong public voice. And he's a really good source. Um, his group is actually working on the vaccine right now, also. Um, and then obviously, just following your local public health department recommendations is always a good option.
1: Okay,
0: great, great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being with us today, and I look forward um, to talking with you in the future.
2: Well, thank you. Thanks.
0: Welcome back, everyone, and we trust that you enjoyed the interview. Jamie, do you have any final thoughts or comments about the interview and Dr. Blackburn's words before we start to move into our last segment?
1: You know, like I said earlier, I, I've I've become kind of a, a a news junkie, and as we've gone through the last few weeks of uh, of living in this uh, this new age that we're living in, and I, I bounce back and forth between. L- listening to, to the president, uh, who, I mean, I think we'll all agree, often struggles to formulate his thoughts in coherent ways, and, and, and listening to experts who, who are clearly wise and, and know this material frontwards and backwards, but also speak like scientists. And, right. What I appreciate about Dr. Blackburn is the manner in which she took exceedingly complex uh, issues and and made them understandable and, and spoke in a way that, that I think most folks could hear. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I really appreciated her uh, giving of her time for us, and I found that interview to be incredibly fascinating.
0: Yeah, so I certainly agree, and I want to I want to take a moment here and uh, and and say that you asked me earlier in the week, Jamie. How did I? How did we get connected with Dr. Blackburn? And um, I wanted to share just a bit of that story because I think it I think it matters. Um, Dr. Blackburn reached out to me about a year and a half ago through my nonprofit that is here, based here in the Delta, in Louisiana, and she reached out as part of a research project she was working on at the time around infectious disease. And she was wanting to do some, she was wanting to, to come and visit uh, our area, but also other parts of the Delta and on into Alabama as well. And looking to see her hypothesis was that there were certain infectious diseases present in this area uh, and wanted to come and, and to see if her hypothesis played out or not. And when she got here, we had a lot of conversations about what life was like and 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 what uh, what issues and opportunities of course are, are present in this area and and I guess somewhere along the way I made a comment about you know I'm sure I, I think I told her that I wasn't sure if her invitation was real because we don't get many invitations from uh, established scholars at Large D1 research universities who actually want to come in and do things in our rural, marginalized communities. And as part of that conversation, um, I'm sure at some point it come out in a focus group that she held that when usually when when folks come through like that, we never see from them again, or we never hear from them again they come they gather what they need their data and they leave and they go and we never see the results or the fruition of that and and i believe that she was challenged that day lovingly so from from community members uh, to, that we wanted to hear back from her and we were and we hope that this would be a relationship that would continue and dr blackburn has honored that going forward from that first visit that she had here over the over this past year and a half or, or more and I knew, and she has been back several times to the Delta um, to speak and to give updates about her work and her research. And I will tell you, as as one who is an academic, as one who has a PhD, as do you, it, it is not that often that, um, as much as scholars sometimes like to talk about neglected and marginalized communities, it is not that often that we get them to actually physically show up and to participate and to learn and to be open to listening to what life is like here. Um, and Dr. Black, I've seen Dr. Blackburn do that here along the border, the Rio Grande Valley area, the border of Mexico. I know some of her work has taken her there, um, into the Mississippi area, Arkansas, Alabama as well. And so it's, it's refreshing to, to, uh, to meet a scholar, um, someone in the scientific community to again, who there's some, there's some underlying values there that got her work to care for the, the marginalized and the forgotten about, which is language that our progressive theological audience will understand and will take to heart as some of the things that we find to be important in the gospel and in our maybe liberation types of approaches to what orients our ministries and our theologies. And so I'd that that's sort of the backstory there and I think it's worth telling and I issue that also as a challenge to other scholars and academics and and others to again not to forget these communities uh, whether it's in the delta or appalachia or along the border or wherever that might be um, don't just talk about us but also come and visit with us and what a privilege it is to have that relationship formed with dr. Blackburn and we just want to give her a shout out for her work and and that that has been able to transition over to this interview as well with progressive southern theologians so we are thankful for that. Absolutely. Jamie, it's time for our front porch musings. For any listeners who may have missed our first show, this is a time when Jamie and I share something from the past week that has caught our attention, maybe something that warms our hearts or inspires us, something that may not be in headline news, but that we still find curious or interesting and want to briefly share. So Jamie, I have an image of us sitting out on your front porch, uh, drinks in hand of whatever type, six respectable and safe feet between us or maybe we're zooming each other to be extra careful and we're shooting the breeze and social distancing. Tell me, what are you musing about this week?
1: Well, as with last week, joy has been in in, in short supply um, as we've gone through this and and I was struggling earlier this week uh, because I was, one of the things that I'm aware of is and this has made a lot of the news, so it's not just sort of my thought, but when they close schools, there are children for whom that's their, that's their only meal of the day is lunch and maybe a a breakfast before school. And so when they close that, when they close schools, that's the first thing to go is that one healthy meal of the day. Within my community, there was concern because outside of my little suburban enclave, it gets very poor very quickly. And and there really isn't a sense as to how a lot of those kids, a lot of those folks were, were going to eat. And then a couple of days ago, I saw a report in our local newspaper saying that three of the hometown restaurants, So not like a chain, but like a single mom and pop style restaurant. were are taking it on themselves to feed children lunch every day. Uh, and so three restaurants in town at a time when restaurants are closing and will be closing very quickly, three places in our town decided to open their doors, not charge a thing, let anybody who is school age come in and and eat a proper meal and do so with dignity and respect and and I think a lot of love you know we talk about the the larger restaurants and corporations and and really they could do this sort of thing too, but because there's never or there's rarely that connection to the towns in which they find themselves there's not this need to, to do things for the good of the community. And yet here are these three restaurants, two of which are incredibly small. And I imagine run very, very tight margins. We said, this is the right thing to do. And, and that makes me incredibly joyful and very, very happy for my, for my town and, and, and the place that I live and love and, And so I'm, I'm exceedingly happy about that this week and and feel a great deal of joy around that.
0: That is wonderful. And I I promise not to editorialize too much in the future, but I can't help myself here. I I would say two things. One, in response to that, for folks who are listening to this and are concerned about um, food access for marginalized communities and children who are not in school, I would encourage you all to, as one who works, lives, and works in a marginalized place every day, don't just assume the best that the, that the operations, that the contingency plans that are put into place, are necessarily going to happen. Go in and check and hold people accountable that they that they actually will work the way that they are intended to work. Um, now that now, don't go in assuming that you know more, but go in with the general a genuine spirit of curiosity and and willingness to. To help and to see what's actually happening. Again, don't go in assuming that things aren't working. But one lesson that I've learned over time is that of being here in the Delta is not to assume that the that the bureaucracy will work the way that it's intended to work, um, and that it is incumbent upon community members in places like uh, in any in any place really, but to 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 respectfully engage in some measures of accountability to see that, the, that the, the most vulnerable are actually receiving the services that are intended for them. Because I've learned that that is not always the case. And two, to get off that soapbox, the other thing I've, I've had to learn to reckon with this week myself or to wrestle with this week is that as all of our restaurants are shut down in Louisiana in terms of their dining rooms, they're often still, they're still open for carry out and take out and so one thing that we're encouraging people in our area as is safe and as is financially viable, of course, um, for people not to forget that they can still patronize these restaurants and other small businesses in ways that make sense and in ways that are safe. Um, so as not to completely cut out these restaurants altogether and, and to still provide, and they're going to be hit financially hard either way, but maybe to lighten that load a little bit if, um, so, you know, I was itching for some some Mexican food the other night, which is one of our two restaurants in town and uh, two total, uh, two or three total. And so uh, it don't, it, my first inclination was to think, oh, well, there's no place to go. Everything's shut down. And then I'm like, oh, OK, well, wait a second. You know, and so don't forget those folks out there and be creative in ways you can support others. My amusing, Jamie, to, to get off of that altogether, uh, my amusing using is not coronavirus related. I needed a break from that and there was something else bringing me great joy. Uh, it's also something I will do a true confession here. As someone who, is, who has had the privilege of, of attaining some higher degrees of education, I am a fan, unashamedly so, I'm working towards that at least. I am a fan of professional wrestling and so I'm gonna put a southern feather in my cap and boldly talk about my love for wrestling this week. I grew, up in, uh, I grew up watching wrestling in the late 80s and early 90s, enthralled by the likes of Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. And of course, North Carolina's, own, where I grew up, North Carolina and you, Jamie, our own nature boy, Ric Flair. When I got into my later teenage years, I put the product down altogether and stopped watching wrestling for some nearly 17 or 18 years. Until this past year. Uh, starting last October, a new wrestling promotion came on TNT on Wednesday nights, and I've absolutely fallen in love with wrestling all over again. Uh, this company is called All Elite Wrestling, or AEW, and it is every bit the ridiculous wrestling show that you would expect of a wrestling show. I'm not going to claim that it's anything you know more than that. But what I want to shout out this week and bring up is that they have done a remarkable job and have intentionally put themselves out as being a progressive and socially responsible show. I kid you not, they have and they have done this to the extent that a wrestling show can do this. Uh, my, My point of emphasis here is about their hire and promotion of openly LGBTQ athletes who are featured on their roster. Uh, and that is plural, not just one, but they are, uh, one of the athletes that are included that I want to point out is a performer named Nyla Rose, who is a Native American trans woman and enrolled member in good standing of the Oneida tribe. Um, she's super popular with fans. Her ring gear bears the red hand, the MMIW symbol that raises awareness of missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, And she won the women's championship belt about a month ago. Uh, Indigenous women are murdered at a rate 10 times higher than any other ethnicity. So it's pretty remarkable to see this of all places in a wrestling show (laughs) um, and that she is a trans woman, Native American and out and is an activist for, um, as a native woman and as a trans native woman, she's an activist for a symbol. That would be very, um, that people would recognize if they follow these things on, on reservations and with native American women. Uh, but she is an activist for that. And right there on the show, right in the middle of some good old wrestling. And she is a great wrestler as well. Um, and as far as the show goes, they don't tokenize Nyla and they don't virtue signal or profiteer off of her, which is also very impressive. Her these aspects of her identity were mentioned early on. If you started watching the show when they first started to be televised, they were mentioned, um, and they are accepted, and it is just part of the fabric of the show. Um, to the point where you might not know if you were to tune in now, if you weren't a diehard and you know and following the show regularly, uh, it, you might recognize that symbol. But otherwise, she's just accepted. She's part of the show. They don't. They have not, and they don't shy away from her identity but they also don't overly shine the spotlight in a way that feels forced or gross, you know, to try, to try to, again, to, to try to make a racket off of it. So it's a smart show. It seems to be a good and thoughtful and ethical business so far. And I just want to throw it out there um, as a counter to some of the less than savory gimmicks and things that professional wrestling promotions have used over the years that this uh, AEW does try to uh, while still being a wrestling show and, and, and framing stories in ways that appeal to folks who like wrestling, they are there are certain things that are out of bounds and there are certain things that they do in a true activist spirit and in a true way that embodies some of the progressive ideals of the people who founded and started the company. So I'm just tickled to death by that and I uh, am trying to work uh, hard to to embrace uh, my southern roots there and uh, to, to just rest in my love for wrestling this week and know that that doesn't take away from any of the other things that I I feel passionate about or work on. And so I'm glad I could share that this evening.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's impressive. I got to say, uh, I I did not see that coming.
0: Uh. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't either. When I started watching the show, you know, I I didn't know all that going into it. Um, It had been uh, for anybody who follows along at home, it's been about 20 years since another, nationally televised wrestling promotion has existed that's been in competition with what used to be the WWF it's now the WWE for about 20 years it's been the only real show in town and I don't know that anyone would say WWE is an um, intentionally progressive show uh, or, or others that have come before them, but, uh, but AEW is truly something a little different. Um, so if you're marginally interested in wrestling, you might want to take a look at that. And uh, if you dig around behind the scenes, I think there might be some things there that, that you would enjoy, even as just a distant spectator. Maybe you don't want to tune in, but just know that it's out there. Know that it, there are some good things happening, uh, even on that front. So...
1: That that is a fine musing for this evening mark
0: <laughs> all right jamie uh, i appreciate that that's going to wrap us up for today um, thank you for your time jamie of course and if you're listening along thank you for joining us remember you can find us on facebook twitter and at progressive southern com. listeners we'll be back with you next week please be safe please wash those hands of yours and please do the best you can with social distancing. If not for yourself, then do it for the sake of others. Y'all take care. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Mark. Have a good night. You